To the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Okay, guys, um, this week I am bringing back uh, Jeff Wassel, a wonderful guest and friend and person who has uh, more than a little bit of experience with this thing that I talked with Jeffrey Augustine a few weeks about, uh, which is GBP Capital. David Gentili, who is a Scientologist, who is in a whole lot of trouble right now with the federal uh, authorities and SEC and other uh, regulatory compliance agencies, as we're going to go over here, his, his, um, his investment firm or company was raided by the FBI. And, uh, and as you'll recall from my talk with Jeffrey Augustine, there's all kinds of you know potential machinations and other things rega- regarding this and the Church of Scientology itself. Which is what, and Scientology is not named as any kind of defendant in this or anything like that. They're not getting raided. But the connection with Scientology is so close and so tight, with David Gentili being a Scientology whale, as we like to call them, these very rich donors to Scientology, that we, ha- you know, that this is obviously Scientology kind of news. So to further look into this and explain what's going on and what could be going on, because we're going to go into the land of supposition a little bit this episode, uh, I'm bringing Jeff on, who has uh, real-world experience with forensic accounting and with investigations of this kind uh, from his own uh, education and, and professional experience. So, Jeff, welcome back to my show. Hi, Chris. It's good to be here always good to uh, talk about a great caper of which we're looking at one right now I think um, so I, I understand you know you and Jeff and Jeff has done a wonderful job on his money project about kind of breaking this thing down and I think it's important for the audience to probably go out to the money project and take a look at kind of the the, the trail here um, what I see it's a classic it's a classic reg D or what they call a private placement vehicle that the owner, or actually the creators, in this case, David Gentili and his board, uh, probably just got in way over their head as it tends to happen with some of this stuff. Um, you know, when you look at this, you look at means, motive, and opportunity from a criminal standpoint. And I'm not going to sit here and say that Gentili went into this thing, you know, as a purposeful defraud, or to purposely defraud people like, say, Bernie Madoff did. But the parallels to classic Ponzi behavior are... I mean, it's, I mean, it's there. I, I can't say anything different. In fact, there's people, there are principals that are part of this investment that are suing Gentilly under the guise of it being a Ponzi scheme. That uh, not so much calling, I mean, they're calling that in press releases, but the way that it's uh, described in the indictment or what happened, the uh, suit, is that uh, the principals use investor capital for personal enrichment and or to give the appearance of liquidity within the fund which is classic legalese for a Ponzi So if you look at the way that this thing is structured, private placement vehicles or blind pool investment or whatever you want to call them are basically what are called Reg D under the, the combined federal regulations on investment rules or statutes. And what Reg D, uh, what Reg D says is that you have to be an accredited investor or somebody that's savvy enough 
and has the financial chops to be able to accept the risk proposition of a vehicle like GPB or anything else. It's like long-term capital was back in the day, any of these things that are going to promise, you know, very lucrative returns. But, you know, they, that's the upside. But, but there's also a great risk of you losing your capital. The other thing about these things, too, is they tend to be highly illiquid. So it's not something you can turn around like a stock and sell the next day after you pump a lot of money into it. You know, Cardone, for instance, ties up a lot of people's money in his REITs and his real estate investment trust and things like that. So you have to be prepared to park your money in these things. And a fraudster knows that. He'll be, you know, he can leverage that capital because theoretically he's operating under the stipulations of the of the prospectus of the way that this, that this thing was set up. So if you look at GPB, it's got, I believe, seven different instruments within it, or I should say asset classes. There's GPB1, GPB, um, GPB2, there's a waste management portfolio, just you know, several different things that I, I believe you guys went into the last time. What's of interest are the two vehicles that um, are kind of probably, I would say, in looking at this, the, the most lucrative in the sense of where uh, the majority of the capital was, was harbored, if you will, and also, uh, theoretically, that would have the best returns. And one is on an automotive portfolio that's essentially a REIT for the, the real estate that the dealerships are on, but also the actual asset class of the cars and all these other things that go along with, you know, with dealerships. And then the other one is waste management and some other, you know, quite what I would call are, are questionable uh, ag aggregations of, of, of assets, if you will. Um, so uh, probably the best way to break this down from there would be to look at why the feds came in. The feds are coming in there and saying, okay, how did you lose $700 million of book value off the top of this out of basically these two funds? And the amount of money we're talking about, in, I guess in on the first of this year, uh, July 1st, they reported 25.4% uh, or a loss of 25.4% of GPP2. And then uh, in their automotive portfolio, almost 40%, which is, I mean, that's steep. And certainly, <laughs> you know, very questionable. So if you dig into this, right off the bat, out of that, so what that represents, as I said earlier, about $700 million. Of that, $100 million went to commissions to what are called broker-dealers. There's 68 broker-dealers that were representing GPB to the market. And interestingly enough, one of the, the reasons that GPB got called was that a compliance officer at one of these broker dealers said that, hey, this GPB2 holdings is should never have gone to market. And this is what good compliance officers do. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about this because that's my background is in compliance. It's just kind of near and dear to me about how this thing broke down. So if you step back and you look at the way that Reg D offerings are not regulated in the same way, say, Series 7, you know, the, the same structures around that, that stockbrokers and other people have to work to when they're selling stocks to the public. There's different compliance stuff or compliance, essentially, of the rules and regulations that ensure that, you know, things are fair. There's equitability. But, you know, there's so always... Let me, a, let me put that in simpler terms for folks who are kind of, you know, swimming a little bit right now. So... Basically, not all, not everything that happens on Wall Street, not everything that happens on the stock market equals everything else that happens on the stock market. There are different kinds of investments, different kinds of ways that people can invest their money. Absolutely. And regu regulation D is a kind of, uh, or, or, a or a set of regulations that apply to a certain kind of investment structure. Precisely. 
which is what GBP was doing. And these are high risk investments. So people know going in that they might not get any of their money back, but they, they, they make the risk assessment and they just, they make a decision to throw their money into this. And so there's a certain set of regulations that apply to that kind of investment, which are different from the kind of regulations that might apply, say, to trading IBM stocks on the stock market. These are two different things. So this is where that concept of an accredited investor that I touched on earlier comes in. Uh-huh. You have to have, again, you have to have the liquidity and the financial, you know, literally the money in the bank. The, 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 the federal government wants you to at least be able to cover your losses somewhat because this is how you get a run on a bank. Or I mean, if, you know, if everybody started losing money in Reg D offerings, I think it create a huge, in a way it did in 2008, except that was with, you know, junk real estate. It's the same thing with, you know, junk uh, securities offerings, right? Okay. So the regulations, the regulatory bodies are watching over this, not not necessarily to protect people from making stupid investments, but to but to make sure that they're not fraudulent investments. That and that there's at least some element of parity in there so that everybody okay. is coming into the market. You know, the free markets theoretically are predicated by the fact that everybody has equal access, right? But yeah. we all know that that's not the case. I mean, there's market manipulation. I mean, all this stuff, right? So in a perfect world, um, that's what the regulator, the, the regulator is trying to at least give some semblance to a perfect world so that people have an idea of what they're going into eyes open. All right. Um, however, the big thing with Reg D or private placement or Blackpool, any of these things that involve uh, huge returns that are basically the province of uh, private equity. You know, these you always hear about private equity guys making these huge, you know, three, four hundred million dollar salaries and all stuff. Well, the reason is that they know how to play, they know how to play the market well, they know how to bundle stuff enough in a way that is uh, they can either absorb the loss or if the loss is spread enough, you know, the risk, the risk is spread enough to the point where it's not going to completely devalue the whole portfolio and the thing crashes. So it's 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 very mathematical, it's very it, it, I mean, the risk calculations in this stuff are incredible, but it's, you know, it's it, there's a scientific basis for it. But also there's a capricious nature of the market, right? The market will just do stuff. But the thing about private equity is that it's very structured around very specific things. So there's kind of what the control variables are as compared to the old, you know, the whole, you know, trying to gain the standard or four or five, you know, the actual stock market. It's... You know, nobody can really do that. I mean, everybody has, you know, pays all kinds of money for guys to send them newsletters about how they can make millions on Wall Street. Well, yeah, it's it's always going to be on any given day, anybody's going to lose their shirt or make a lot of money, right? Right. So, so basically, it. when we say, you know, this old adage that Wall Street's basically legalized gambling, there Absolutely. is a lot of truth to that. Absolutely, it is. Okay. And I would say there's a lot of illegal gambling that goes on, too, just because of the nature of what's happening. And this is what the illegal gambling goes on in these types of private, you know, these private placement vehicles, because there is so much money at stake that people just ignore the rules. You know, and this is what happens, you know, and, and in a way, though, if you look at Madoff as a classic idea of, of regulatory I mean, they're talking about a sleep at the switch. I mean, the feds, is completely, the SEC just completely dropped the ball now. They were told over and over again that Madoff, there was just no way these returns were real. In fact, the guy wrote a book about it and said, you know, this guy, there's no way this could work. But the state district, you know, everybody that was anybody 
ignored it until the whole thing came down in a big house of tears. So I guess, you know, the good thing that came out of that is that the GPVs of the world, you know, FINRA, the Financial Regulatory Authority that looks at, that's kind of the, the cop for the Securities and Exchange Commission, if you will, the guys that look at the actual legality of behavior in, in the market, came back and said, well, we really need to pump up the protocols and the, and the regulatory environment. Plus, we need to get tighter with the whole anti-money laundering and post-Patriot Act, uh, what's called know your due diligence, enhanced due diligence, and know your customer for visas, uh, preventing dirty money from getting into the system. Well, a lot of that also works to prevent the regulations from being abandoned because you have to have processes and procedures. You have to have a compliance officer. You have to have all this stuff and witness the idea that was actually a whistleblower from a, compli a compliance officer at a broker dealer that, you know, called time on GPB. It's interesting to note that GPB lost a compliance officer back when this first started coming down. He retired, he resigned the day that their, their auditor resigned back in November of last year. So the compliance, if you look at the compliance history of GPB, it's atrocious. And then you look at the way that they're looking at their investments. So they've got five-star Cartage was uh, probably the largest component of their waste haulage or their waste uh, waste management portfolio, and they were getting nailed for regulatory and safety violations. So obviously, nobody at GPB was doing due diligence to go in and say, "Okay, I mean that's that's the biggest component of where these things fall down for us." Is that these guys are just looking at the dollars; they're not looking at the at the actual structural problems that an investment might have, which is the nature of where the capital is coming from, how this, you know, the people actually involved in the investment, you know, guys running what they're going to pump money into, you know, this is, this is, you know, Warren Buffett saying, always, you know, understand what you're going to invest in. I mean, this is taking it to the nine. They can't be bothered to put three people to go down to a cartridge company and see that there's glass lying over the place and no fire extinguisher. I mean, stuff like that, common sense, you know, and this is the duty of care, a fiduciary responsibility. And, and they're saying that they're doing this to their investors. This is the other, you know, component of a fraud is a complete abrogation or, you know, the ignorant, ignoring the rules that, you know, so that you can get a higher return because that's going to cost money. So obviously your margins go away, blah, blah, blah. So really what we're talking about is uh, you have David Gentile or you have these players who are putting this thing together and running it. They are doing it in a slipshod, half-assed manner. They're not complying with the laws they're supposed to. You mentioned, you know, attention on the dollar, maximal return on investment, screw the rules. This sounds very much, and I, and and we're sort of you know, setting the stage here, or laying all of this out for a reason, guys. You know, we're not just talking about this because it's all very interesting, boring regulatory stuff. We're trying to make a point here that we have guys who are engaged in what appears to be or what is parallel to or very similar to uh, fraudulent activity. And it's and it, and I can't help but think because there's Scientology involved in this, that there are Scientology principles at play here. Make it go right, you know, is sort of a wing it and prayer sort of approach and attitude that is rife throughout Scientology. Screw the rules, 
screw, you know, any sort of regulations or log law, that kind of thing. We've seen this uh, manifested within the Sea Org and within Scientology over and over and over again. So here's a Scientology whale setting up this investment fund and people are, are putting money into it. And he's just sort of running the thing on a bit of a wing and a prayer. Is so I, am I getting this? Somewhat. So I want to make it clear that you have part of the, of, of putting together a vehicle. This is a huge vehicle. This is, you know, two, we're talking, you know, two, three billion dollars under management, right? This is not something to blink at. Well, you're also, you're predicating the collection of these assets on the fact that the people you're doing business with at least have, are trying to do the right thing as well. And when I say the right thing, at least adhere to what the feds are saying about the way a registry should be structured as it's, it's a, it's a combined investment, the way that your portfolio has been managed, say all this, this, this collection of car dealerships or a collection of waste haulage, all the stuff that is combined into GPD's portfolio, right? The thing that, that screams to me, though, about the questionable nature of this is Gentile has, he was an accountant working for his father. He has no private equity experience. So he's got guys around him. I mean, is he, is, you know, is he a useful idiot? I mean, is he, I mean, who's going into this? You know, and there's Scientology people on the board. I think Jeff broke down the, the composition yeah. of the board. I think there's like five or six people on there. So I've always had a theory in my mind about the way Scientology operates. And this is, you know, you know what I call the Forrest Gump of Scientology, Manuel Veda. Viena, I can never say the guy's name right, but he always pops up in these things. You know, he's, he was part of Oncos with Jeff Feshbach. Here he is with GPP. And, you know, this guy is, is, is not a, a rookie. This guy's a heavy hitter. So he knows what he's doing. So is there an aggregation of capital that comes in these things just because it's whale money? Uh, and you've got smarter people in the room than, you know, than the guy at the figurehead, i.e. in this case, you know, Daniel Gentile. You know, his father was a very accomplished, a, you know, a, a very accomplished, very well-known Long Island accountant for many years. So, I mean, he's legit, but yet he's not legit as a, as a, I mean, who on the street is looking at this guy going, huh, where'd he come from? So then that kind of, that ignorance that percolate down the, down the chain, or is there a very, you know, a very specific conscious knowledge of what they're doing is questionable. Because again, we're looking at the margins. We're looking at, a, at the upside of this is incredibly lucrative. So then that's where this idea of, of this kind of questionable compliance percolates all the way down to these investments, to the way that they do their due diligence. I mean, due diligence is huge. I cannot say that enough to the to the to the audience that this is what uh, this is what any prudent investment vehicle or the regulators work on. Everybody works on due diligence. And that simply means that you go do your homework. You put somebody on the on the on the floor of a shop floor to make sure that it that it, it exists. You know, you're just not buying some empty building in Brooklyn, right? And that there's machines in there that are making something, right? So in this case, it would be going out and making sure that these waste haulage companies are doing their thing. And and <laughs> the thing that you always have to look at in New York and waste haulage is where's the mob, right? Right. I mean, Carthage, quote unquote, is what it's called, has been a mob scam for since Vito Genovese's days, right? I mean, it's been around forever. And the difference between what he's doing with Five Star and some of these other things is what's called private cartage versus cartage that's run, or, you know, this is garbage collection, basically, by the city of New York or the boroughs in the city of New York. 
the city really tried to crack down on mob influence and also questionable safety and union behavior, all the stuff that goes around this. But yet, because of the free market stipulations of the way that the world works, somebody steps up and says, okay, I can do this cheaper, you know, outside of the regulatory's remit or outside of the way the city's managing it. And that's where you come up with private cartage. So these are guys that go around at night and collect mostly from commercial establishments like restaurants and things like that. And they, <laughs> there's a whole, I've got an article right here from, I think it too, is it, uh, ProPublica did a very good article about the FBI looking at GPB, their relationship with Five Star, and the whole thing is just ripe with a lack of due diligence, union problems, safety problems. And so what is GPB comes out, you know, after the fact makes this big thing on their website, hey, we've hired, you know, a safety regulator for our waste haulage <laughs> portfolio. Well, for crying out loud, why did you do that when you started the thing? You look at the history of GPB, it's all reactive. These guys had no clue from the start outside of how they put this thing out there to solicit money into it to make money. I mean, it's so we're, so we're, we could be looking at a couple different scenarios, fraud through ignorance and desperation and stupidity or fraud through pre-calculation or a evolving mess where they're ignorant and stupid and then they get smart. But as they're getting smart, they are continuing to make these, uh, you know, somewhat fraudulent or stupid uh, decisions and getting in more and more and more trouble. And it appears that there's a very real possibility based on what you were just talking about there with uh, what some of the investments were made into that there are that they were investing in things that are actually mob backed. I would uh, say necessarily that they may be mob backed, but there might be mob money in them. You right. know, because you have to understand that after you know the mob was basically you know put out the pasture. I would say in its earlier iteration in the early 90s. I mean, after Gotti went down and, and you know, Gasso and some of these other guys went to jail, the families basically went shifted from street crime to financial crime, stock manipulation, you know, and, and the mob is always invested in legitimate enterprises. So, I mean, Paul Castellano, the concrete club in the 80s, right? If you're going to build a building in New York in the 80s, you bought concrete from the mob or a company owned by the mob. So uh, it's when it, I don't want to be sitting here and saying that David Gentile is going down to the corner and getting stacks of cash with a bidge of 30%, right? That's not what we think. Right. No, to, I'm, and I want to be clear about this. Yeah. yeah. What we're saying is, is that some of the companies, and, all, and this is where we start getting into where the money plays and how the, the mafia loans money. If you look at the way that the mob launders money, it's through legitimate enterprises, but they're usually heavily involved in union and other environments that they already control the context of which that investment can be manipulated. So gambling, loan sharking, all these things. But yet you can do that in an environment that is legitimized by certain industries or sectors, waste haulage, concrete. Uh, recycling, you know, computer recycling is a big thing now. All these things. The mob has its fingers in a lot of this stuff. And and selling cars. Well, yeah. I mean, the mob for years it used to invest. In fact, this was Meyer Lansky's big thing. He, he got into auto dealerships right at, you know, big time after the war because everybody had spare money. Cars were big, right? You know, the war, you couldn't buy a car. So the 50s, all of a sudden, bang, the dealership, you know, Ford, GM, 
Detroit for lack is, is just pumping out these cars. So the beauty of that is that you can own the land that the dealership's on. You can loan the you can loan or you can own the cars themselves, the actual inventory. You can own the financial chain that helps somebody buy a car. I mean, you want to talk about printing money, auto dealerships were a great thing. And they're, you know, also you can great way to pay your buddies off. Hey, you know, Vito, go down and just tell, you know, old Rick at the dealer, you know, that that uh, that, that uh, two fingers sent you and you know, just drive away from a car and we're clear, right? I mean, the amount of mob debt that was cleared by just giving people cars, especially in Vegas and places like that, is just off the charts. I mean, it's a, it was a classic tit for tat Goomba play, right? So dealers, auto dealerships have always been in that. Um, so does that mean that the portfolio that Gentile is managing? No, probably not. I mean, you look at Premier as a very legitimate company. And, and it's interesting that the guy that runs it is turning around and suing GPB, saying that they are a Ponzi scheme. So, you know, there is, you can always say there's no honor among thieves, but then you can also say that, look, you know, just because there has been a taint of organized crime behavior in an industry, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to be involved in a transaction. But if I'm looking at this, this big, there's there's this big chunk missing. Okay, that those big, those figures I quoted earlier, the the 23, I'm sorry, the 23 or whatever, the 23 and ah, the 25 and 39 percent. I mean, that represents again 700 million dollars. 100 million dollars of that is is gone into broker dealership commissions. So where's the rest of that gone? Has it gone into propagating or perpetuating, I should say, the Ponzi? A Ponzi scheme essentially is where you rob Peter to pay Paul. You pay, you take early investment capital, turn it around, and and use that as a hook to bring in new investment capital, and you pay the earlier investors with new money coming in. So it perpetuates itself. And then you, you know, you try and encourage them to park it and keep it in there. So what says that all of a sudden, if there's either mob money or mob back money in these dealerships or more so probably on the cartage side, that this money was borrowed. There was money in there somewhere and the loans being called on it. You know, the vig on or what's, what's called the big issue, the interest on mob money is always extortion. And if you're desperate, if you're in a GPB situation where, you know, you're trying to rob Peter to pay Paul, you need you need liquidity quickly. And the banks are looking at you askance because you just got raided by the FBI and FINRA. Where are you going to go get money? You're going to go to questionable second and third party. You need to get junk debt. You're going to go out and get some other, you know, legitimate source, or you're going to find something that may be quasi, uh, you know, quasi questionable. You're in New York for crying out loud. There's all kinds of money floating around. So there are all kinds of things to me that stink in the way that that money went away, especially when you look at the problems that they're having with the cartridge side of this investment. And that question of where that $700 million went uh, is the thing that is the reason why there are raids and FBI interest and SEC interest and all of that. Is it's just too big of a question, and it's too much money. Well, it's a classic Ponzi hole. I mean, when you see that kind of money just go away, it's either gone into the it's gone into the principal's pockets, or it's been laundered somewhere. It's sitting in the Cayman somewhere, or it's being used to recycle. You know, the, the investment to keep it perpetual. You know, to, to, to as I said, to perpetuate the, the Ponzi fraud. Right. So, All right. Now I want to connect some dots here, and and I'm going to say again. 
from the beginning that this is suppositional. We are conjecturing right now when we're talking, when we're going into the territory I'm about to ask Jeff about, okay? So this is not a matter of uh, we are absolutely sure that this is what Scientology is up to or something, but but we're going to give you some... <laughs> We're going to give you some some experiential and knowledge-based supposition, not just pulling it out of our whatever. Um, you know, Scientology has a, a thing about it that it attracts people to get-rich-quick scheme-type setups. This has been going on in Scientology for decades. I mean, my parents got involved with Amway through Scientology. Um, I have seen countless numbers of people. There's a guy out there. Some of you might recognize his name or face if I showed it. Kevin Trudeau is a guy who's been bouncing around for decades with various get-rich-quick schemes and, and, and things he'll sell you that will allow you to remember things better, read faster. And he even got involved straight up in pushing Dianetics. Uh, and and was trying to sell Dianetics intro kits, uh, which were the CDs and the Dianetics book. Uh, he was he was and and he was so bad. He was so blatantly out there that Scientology actually got rid of him. <laughs> I remember that issue. He's doing a hard time now. If I don't. Know. Yeah, he's in jail. Um, but he was around the pack base, and he was getting. You know, he was interested in Scientology, buying services, promoting Dianetics, and then it came up even on Scientology. Uh, the Sea Org guys were like, yeah, no, we're, you're involved in stuff we, can, we don't want to be connected with, and they kicked them out. So um, I, I use that only as a single example. There are many, many, many of them that I witnessed over the years as a Scientology staff member and then Sea Org member, the most famous, of course, being like a Reed Slatkin type person who uh, flat out running a straight up Ponzi scheme got completely busted. A lot of Sea Org members, as well as Scientology public and, and non-Scientologists, lost a lot of money uh, in that scam. That was a huge, huge scam. And, um, and of course, there were lots and lots and lots of Scientologists involved in that because Reed Slatkin was promising unbelievable returns on investment and for years was, return, was, was uh, feeding those investments, you know, was, was, was giving good returns to people. Uh, and then it all just fell apart because it was actually a Ponzi scheme. Uh, so, so that was a big, big, huge, you know, flappy problem for Scientology. You have been looking at Scientology for a couple of years now, I think, uh, as we've been talking about this stuff, and you have this unique background with this. So what, so all that being said, <laughs> what's your take on everything I'm sitting here talking about and what do you see with this kind of stuff? So I've always... Anybody that knows my work around Scientology, I've always framed, framed Scientology in terms of organized crime. Yeah. To me, that it's it's no different than Vito Genovese or the Columbos or any of these guys, right? Uh, and the reason I say that is that you have all the, the same behaviors that are you know completely motivated by greed, all right, and business. Um, you know, the mob at the end of the day has always been a business. Murder and all these other things are just, you know, they perpetuate the way that you make money. And this is why there was always a great debate about drugs and all these other things. But at the end of the day, it's always about money. And so is Scientology. In mob terms, it's, you know, expanding the wealth of the family. In Scientology, it's terms, it's how do I get up the bridge, right? And I want money to get up the bridge. Scientology demands I give money to perpetuate the church. Money, money, money. You know, regging is just another form of extortion. 
everything I pay on top of that's a bid. I'm being charged 20% more because I'm having to throw it on a credit card or, or they're going to take my house. I mean, all that crap that Scientology does to get money from me. No different. And where it all boils down to is the idea of affinity scams or where, you know, classic affinity scams. What an affinity scam is, is or fraud is where the you're looking at, if you're the, you the frauds are looking at marks that are based on common interests or that are derived or that are looking at aspirational things above and beyond greed. So, you know, Tony Robbins is a classic example of this. You know, he's, he gets people to buy into this idea that he's going to make you a better person. But hey, if it doesn't work, oh well. But, you know, you're with a lot of other people that are trying to think the same thing. Meanwhile, you know, you're going to get charged for books and tapes and all those stuff. That's not necessarily a fraud, but it's premised on some things that are very questionable. So then if we look at, you know, the slackens of the world or the GPBs or you know, these other guys, uh, you know, the, uh, the, Spina, the Spina brothers, $80 million, right, Medicare fraud. The thing that you always see in Scientology, what I call Scientology capering, is that it's always repeatable. The fraud is always repeatable. It's almost a template. And I wouldn't be surprised if there's a wise... If there's some kind of wise protocol or some policy that says, when you go to a wise seminar, don't forget to talk about the XYZ Medicare fraud, except it's not fraud. It's just how you can leverage your existence with the federal government to help build your wise business, right? So, you know, to that, we look at the idea of, again, the mob feels, it feeds this idea of elitism. It feeds this idea of, you know, we're us together. We can make money, blah, blah, blah. But gangsters are always capering against each other. They're always ripping each other off. It's always about money. Scientologists, the same way. They're always screwing each other to get money to get up the bridge or to reg or to get status, right? I mean, the IAS is nothing more than trying to, to go from a street soldier to a capo de tutti capi to consigliere to run in the mob, right? No different. It's all climbing the frickin' ladder. And, and it's just, it's pathetic, really, that the church sits there and tries to put some kind of legitimacy on these, this whole wise nonsense. Because at the end of the day, it's always about more money for the church or for the mob, for the, for the family. And so, That's right. And just and just to be clear for anybody who's a little confused right now about this reference to wise, in case you don't know, WISE is an actual division of the Church of Scientology. It's called WISE, which is the World Institute of Scientology Enterprises, which is this cute acronym of WISE, which is Scientology business people. They are required to actually sign up with WISE and pay a membership due, and that gives them the right to use L. Ron Hubbard's administrative policies and procedures in their own business, and they are heavily encouraged to do this to the point that Scientology has rewritten L. Ron Hubbard's policies and directives into secularized versions that can be used by any business, and they uh, heavily encourage Scientology business people to adopt Hubbard's ways of running their own organization. So that's nominally what it's all about, but it's also a networking vehicle for Scientology business people to connect with other Scientology business people. And it and it, and they have conventions and seminars and they foster these relationships. And this is how people like David Nincilli can get in touch with other wealthy Scientologists and propose investment schemes like GBP Capital. That's just one avenue that that sort of thing happens on, but I'm just letting you guys know what that's all about. 
I also find it interesting that if you look at the preponderance of wise businesses, they're around chiropractic, insurance, dentistry. Not that dentistry is probably as, as fraudulent, as rife with fraud as chiropractic, but they're always around things that there's an insurance component to. And insurance is, is always been a classic vehicle for fraud. And it's just everything that you look at around the way that Scientology proposes a, a, a wise business be run is always questionable in the way that even for the most ethical people on the planet, there's, they're always looking for wiggle room about how they can scam somebody, either themselves or some other entity, because again, the greatest number of dynamics and the greatest number of good, right? I mean, it's this whole idea of, you know, we're, we need, we're going to save the planet, we need money to save the planet, blah, blah, blah. So right out the window, there's this whole, in fact, going back to your point earlier about the way that Scientology operates and the regulators and a lot of, or not the regulators, but some of these, I would say most people involved in a lot of these frauds, is this idea of willful blindness. And what willful blindness is, is a legal term that is where somebody that should know better looks the other way, for lack of a better explanation. And Scientology and a lot of private equity is rife with willful blindness. You know, in fact, if you look at a lot, most RICO, RICO cases start with willful blindness, right? Because somebody just didn't want to do the right thing. And before you know it, you've got all these predicate crimes. Bang, the feds come in and say, pal, you're going away because you have this pattern of illegality because somebody just decided not to do the right thing. Exactly. And this, I'll just, I'll just pipe in here from the Scientology perspective of where are their heads at that they would do this or that they would act that way or be so negligent or slack or, or not following regulations or whatever is that that really is an attitude that is inculcated from L. Ron Hubbard in his teachings. I mean, this is not a coincidence. It's not just chance that Scientology business people have this kind of attitude towards rules, guidelines, regulations that are meant to protect them and others that they're doing business with. That the Scientologist attitude that is that is fostered and, and, and sort of cared for and, and actually developed as you become a Scientologist is that you are the most important person in your universe. And... Um, and that if you're doing something that forwards your survival and the survival of the Church of Scientology, which as you become a Scientologist, these two things become more and more aligned, that your interests and the, and the church's interests become more and more the same, and you start equating them more and more as the same, you develop the attitude as a Scientologist that anything you do that improves or 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 forwards Scientology and its mission is the most ethical thing to do, period. There's well, that and the that. rampant disdain for WOG law, right? Well, I mean, that's, where, that's where I'm going because that's yeah. where that comes from is it comes from the fact that what we're doing is saving the world. What we're doing is providing, you know, eternal spiritual freedom and immortality to all beings on planet Earth. There isn't anything more important than that in the end. So all of your compliance and regulations and guides and things that I have to do to make the world a better place, to me, become optional. I'll comply with them if I have the time, if I, if I make the effort. It is only because I'm doing you a favor kind of thing. Because can't you see what I'm doing is so important and is literally saving the world. So 
I'm right, you're wrong in any calculation that I'm doing, right? And that's where the attitude comes from as to why, as well as the greed component, which is huge, okay? But I'm talking about an underlying moral or ethical philosophy that justifies all of this behavior, right? Breaking any rule you have to doesn't really matter if the end, you know, it's an end justifies the means mentality or philosophy is what I'm describing here. So I wanted to throw that in there into the mix so that you get the idea that when you're talking about Scientologists, you are talking about people who are in a different mindset than your average Joe. And that applies to Wall Street as well. There's a great irony there in that you know, the mob never makes any pretensions about morality or the idea that there's, I mean, it's, it's an amoral play to make money. Greed is good. I mean, it's, well, it's, it's geckos different, except it's, you know, it's, it's a street. It's, you know, it's a Guido version of it, right? That's right. That's right. And greed is good. Or some of these other things. I mean, any good investor will say, you know, money is amoral. I mean, it's, there is no, you know, you can be ethical about something, but at the end of the day, you're just weighing the odds. It's risk. And so what makes something like GPB insidious is that that was maybe taken into account, but yet there is just the underlying nature of pure greed and avarice all the way through the chain that compounds, that compounds the problem. Those 68 broker dealers, the actual Scientology mindset at the board level of GPB. So before you know it, you've got this toxic greed stew that is just saying, fuck it, we're not going to sit here and do anything by the rules. We want those returns. Now, mind you, at the beginning when they set this thing up, they were, you know, they did it right. They've got lawyer. I mean, this is this was a legitimate thing. But just like any other fraud that ends up, most Ponzi frauds end up becoming just a, it's like a juggernaut. The people that are in charge they just have no way to control it because they never figured on the amount of either money going out or the actual caprice of behavior of those people that are part of the investments or the fact that they just got caught up in making so much money, their common sense went out the window before they know it, they're having to cover their assets with whatever they can, right? Shades of that off. And this is why all of a sudden the feds come in and say, well, wait a minute. And, you know, and how they can put press releases out that said, well, we're just restating our books, restating our books. It says we got caught as far as I'm concerned. Now, the whole thing is when you get into a court of law, how do you prove intent? So that's why I'm trying to be very circumspect here about the way, you know, the, the Gentili's mindset and these other people who are involved. But, I mean, if I look at this thing forensically, it's like, yeah, right. You know, so there we are. Right, exactly. I'll speak to mindset only because I have the experience to, but I can't say for sure what's going on in David Gentili's head. I've never met the man. I can only speak in broad terms of, of the Scientology mindset and attitude and the, and the attitude that is inculcated into Scientologists. I'm not speaking at, you know, just from my own experience of what, was, what I believed as a Scientologist, but I, what I trained other Scientologists to believe. What, uh, the attitudes I fostered and encouraged in others and saw Scientology leadership foster in individual Scientologists. And greed is good is absolutely the mentality. Gordon Gecko would be a great Scientologist. And in fact, what we see in Gordon Gecko and what I find repulsive about Grant Cardone is, is all of the Gordon Gecko that I see in him. 
Yeah, and I see all, I mean, you have a picture of him licking a bar of gold and yeah, big, I, that's, big greedy yeah, smile on his face. And you just go, who is this person? What is that? That, that would, that would make somebody be that way. It's because it is kind of just kind of a, re, a repugnant kind of attitude. It's all about, I got mine. And if you're lucky and work really hard, you'll get yours too. And uh, you just pay me a thousand dollars and I'll tell you all about how to do it. And that's Grant Cardone in a nutshell, you know, and I, I just kind of find that kind of personality a bit repugnant. There are lots of people out there who are just, you know, like moths to a flame to that kind of personality because they want to live that kind of lifestyle too. And that's the kind of personality that is often attracted to groups like Scientology. And they find Scientology appealing because it makes promises like that. So aspiration Aspiration and hubris go hand in hand a lot of times. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's it's unfortunate but true. And it's the thing that that's what makes these things work. Yeah. Everybody wants something for nothing. Everybody wants to turn their eye to that gut instinct that says, "Well, wait a minute." Um, I think you know maybe to bring things full circle. Um, so where are we with GPB? Um, here we are in August, uh, and on the thirty first of July. Fidelity Investments, which is also aligned with, uh, I think, what is it, National, the National Financial Services, which is like a clearinghouse for broker dealers of securities and stuff like this, told investors in GDB to get those assets off their platform because they can't value them, which is a huge, huge blow to the legitimacy of, of GPB's portfolio. Okay, that's essentially saying we, we don't want you trading this here on one of the largest broker-dealer platforms in the country, right? Okay. And then you've got a class action lawsuit that's been launched by uh, a variety of, of attorneys. I mean, the, the feeding frenzy around this thing on Wall Street amongst the, the blue-chip law firms has been amazing. I think I was going through a, a, a Nexus, Lexus Nexus search, and there's probably 30 or 40 very high-end, you know, people that wouldn't, you know, mess around given what they bill out per hour are going after this thing big time. Wow. And important to note that you don't necessarily sue. You go into arbitration, you file a claim with FINRA. And if the arbitration fails, then you go to law. You go to you go to court. So a lot of these people have are probably in the throes of finishing up that process that are going to go to court. And that will that will be probably the downfall of EPBs. They'll be sued into Chapter seven or chapter eleven. I mean, okay, got it. I would give these guys a year, even if they try and restructure. I don't think they're going to be around much longer. Do you see, um, based on what you're looking at and your experience and, and past cases similar to this, do you see jail time for anybody? So white collar fraud is uh, it's on the scale of a Madoff. It was, you know, clear as day that the thing was set up from the beginning as a Ponzi scheme. So this goes back to intent, means, motive, and opportunity, right? Three things you got to prove to some extent to have a, you know, to go to court or to, you know, have somebody in the dock and convict them. Um, if the, the people that will, if, if anybody hangs for this, it'll probably be somebody in the, you know, that that in the compliance world, somebody on the board that had prior knowledge of the uh, tenuous nature of these investments. Now, since Gentilly is at the, you know, he's a fiduciary, he can't really sit there and, and plead ignorance. 
Um, he may get convicted. He may, you know, all these guys may, you know, get convicted, but, you know, jail, hard to say, you know, and because, you know, white collar crime certainly has, you know, a criminal element to it where people go to jail. But I think it's going to be either if they do, a, uh, if it's a classic, if it's prosecuted as a classic fraud, it may not end up as being, you know, people, you know, going away for 10, 12 years. If you go to some country club farm in Pennsylvania, who knows? Um, but, you know, if there's criminality involved where, you know, thing, you know, there's money, you know, there's mob money in there or that there was, uh, you know, backhanders, you know, people exchange, you know, there was obstruction of justice, things like that. Then you've got a RICO component to it. If the feds want to go down that route, um, you know, it's, it's anybody's guess at this point. I, I don't want to speculate. I, because Every the feds have gone silent. There's not a lot on the radar screen right now since those those raids. You know they're doing. They're probably doing their discovery. They're probably you know they're doing their forensic accounting. They're crawling under the hood. Meanwhile, you know this this thing is in limbo. They can't trade. I mean they've pretty much been suspended as far as being able to uh, to issue new prospectuses. Um, so we're in a holding pattern. I think out of these this feeding frenzy of, of arbitration is more discovery that FINRA or actually the SEC or the, the FBI can subpoena or get a hold of and say, well, here we now have a pattern of malfeasance that is indicative of a, of a major fraud, Ponzi scheme, what have you, that they can then be, that then becomes indictable. And that's when we get people in court. And that's when we start looking at people maybe going to jail. Okay. Right, so that's probably a year away. Okay, got it. Now, there's one last little component to this that I want to ask you about. And again, this is all just sort of conjectural. Um, but there was this guy that I think Jeff Augustine and I talked briefly about in our last podcast, who was sort of a second in command, or and you had mentioned him earlier here in this podcast, who seems to have disappeared. Oh, and, yeah, Manuel Vienna. Uh, yes. I'll get that guy's name. Uh, you know, so... Anytime you want to, to bust a very complex fraud or get a RICO indictment or something, you need somebody on the inside, you need somebody wearing a wire or something, somebody that can go in there and say, I saw this, or I actually cooked the books, you know, and you give them uh, immunity and, and they roll and you go. And this is where Mr. Manuel comes in is why did he just all of a sudden, I mean, he's been scrubbed off of LinkedIn, he's been scrubbed off of, you know, and he's gone. He's like a man you know, in, in the ether. So the only time that happens is, you know, he's sitting, you know, in a 55 gallon drum off the Caymans because the mob didn't want him talking. I don't think that's the case. I think, you know, he's either, he's turned himself in or not turned himself in, but, uh, you know, they got the goods on him or he was a whistleblower and has gone into, you know, a witness protection program or he's a cop, who knows? But it's awfully odd for somebody of that stature to just disappear. So yeah, I, I that's why I wanted I, to comment yeah. on it. Uh huh. That's why I wanted to comment yeah, on it. I think, it was that, odd. I think that he's. I think the, the feds have probably squirreled him away because he's a he's a savvy guy. He's an operator. He's financially astute. Um, he's also has a pattern of being around this kind of behavior in Scientology. So it's not like he can plead ignorance that he didn't know that he was hanging with a bunch of whales, right? Um, you know, so there's a, you know, there's a conspiracy component to this. 
there's an obstruction of justice component to this if they were destroying. You know, this is why the feds raid so quickly when they hear about this stuff. They don't want people wiping hard drives and, you know, and taking stuff to Iron Mountain and shredding it. I mean, they they want to get the goods, right? Yeah, exactly. So that's exactly. This a big thing when you're looking at, 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 at proving the existence of a fraud is the finance, you know, the paper trail, obviously. Follow the money. Always been the case. Follow yeah, the exactly. There's one last thing I wanted to ask about on this, and this is just sort of my own curiosity and also potentially another, you know, uh, avenue of approach here with church Scientology itself. I know for a fact that Scientology invests some of its money. I, I know that from time when I was in the church, or at least in the past, they have. Uh, because I talked to a person who worked at Int Finance who basically told me that. And this was an innocent conversation. I wasn't, I mean, I was just in the Sea Org at the time. So I wasn't, you know, I didn't know everything I know now, but I found it interesting and I've always pondered it. I remembered it because I always thought it was so odd to me uh, that a church would invest parishioner money in the potential of really in a, in a kind of gambling. I mean, that's what investments are. And, you know, with parishioner money. And I've always sort of thought to myself, it's always sort of sat in the back of my head as something that seems seems off to me that, that the churches can do that. But I wanted to ask you about it. Now, we didn't talk about this beforehand, so I know I'm just kind of throwing this at you, but what's what, what what's your view on that? Well, so, I mean, churches are businesses, right? I mean, you have to reinvest capital. There's nothing that says they can't. No, I think there isn't anything that says they can't, but then again, are they are they doing so with full transparency and and do people know that that's where some of their donations well, so are going, is, that sort of thing. The problem comes in with 503C status and the whole, you know, the, the, the opaque nature of the way that the IRS monitors the funds in churches. I mean, my God, the Catholic church, any huge church. I mean, the amount of money that's just floating around out there, right? So theoretically, you know, they, they can file 990s, which are, business expenses and, you know, investment at legal losses and things like that. So there is some transparency about the way they, they run their financial affairs relative to the business of the church, right? Um, it's now how prudent their investment portfolio is, is a whole nother question, right? Well, that's what leads me because I'm wondering, you know, we cannot say we're not in any position right now. I don't think you or I are to say that Scientology did or did not invest in GBP, as for example. I'd be inclined to say they did. In fact, I'd be, inclined to, say, I'd be inclined to say that they've invested in cargo. I, I, you know, they're investing in anybody that is allied because I think there's a quid pro quo where, okay, you give us a nice big chunk of cash in the IS, we're going to turn around and give you some money and make your goal. Because inevitably, if those guys are making money, there's more money for the IS at the end of the day, right? Well, that's exactly true. Now, is there anything about that that is legally questionable, or is that totally above the board's activity, and what's the problem? Nothing's illegal about it, unfortunately. I mean, because... <laughs> You know, I, I think, it, unfortunately, because nothing, nothing says that they can't make a private donation to the church, right? You know, I mean, that's this is what sucks about the whole First Amendment and religious protections around money in the church. I'm telling you, you know, if I was going to put regulations on that, at least I would put regulations on full transparency of where that money's going. It you know, really, <laughs> yes, exactly. I wasn't I mean, going to go that far right now, but yes, I I am for taxing churches, but I um I, I really think that the that the the transparency of church finances needs to become a public 
issue because I, I I don't agree that these guys should get all this money from various donors and then not have to report on what they're doing with that money. Well, I think the other you know, we've talked about this. Maybe it's another podcast, but to me, the IAS is nothing more than a private equity vehicle inside of Scientology. I mean, I think it's used to not only fund the ideal lords, but to fund all kinds of stuff that, you know, may have an art, you know, return on investment for whales, for miscavige, for the church. I mean, that's, I mean, there's what, $2 billion sitting in that thing? That's more exactly. than GP, right? Exactly. And, and, and you look at the nature of Scientology and Scientologists and what it's all about, and you go, there's no way that's a clean fund. There's no way there's not something snarky going on there. But but how do you find out? There really is no way unless you're a government regulator. Well, well, and even then, you'd have to subpoena it and you'd have to have, I mean, and they would fight that to the ninth degree over church and state subpoena, all that crap. Exactly. So, you know, so this is the thing is that until there is a private, and this is what they do so well in Britain and in, in, in Europe, is there... You know, what's the, the private benefits test? You know, all these things around where is this money going? This is, a, you know, the facade of the charade, I should say, whatever, the, the whole ideal or thing. I mean, it's just, it's uh, a loss leader to make the whales, everybody feel happy that their money's being done something. But it's also a way to, to show the IRS, hey, we're doing something with all this money. Well, yeah, what else, right? So <laughs> the thing perpetuates itself no differently than GPB does in just a different guys really as far as i'm concerned yeah exactly well i wanted to point that out to people because i think that that is something that is an avenue that needs a lot more looking but it's but it's difficult because uh, how do you look how do you examine how do you investigate you know you do have authors certain you do have for-profit entities in, in scientology so it'll be interesting to see you know how they run the money out of the church's non-profit side into that for-profit side so then they, they can write losses off you know you can write off investment losses so what's to say that they can't be running that money through I, you know these guys are shrewd they, they've got good accounts working for them so you know gpb it's not like it's a laundering vehicle but what says it's just not a, it's a way to hide losses or to you know manipulate cash flow back to other individuals in the church i.e high net worth individuals the whales that there is a quid pro quo relationship at this you know, what Jeff Augustine, I think, presciently calls a Scientology money club, right? You know, it's all these dudes at a certain, you know, it's <laughs> Tony Ortega publishes a guide every year, right? You know, the, the, the whales, I mean, it's, there's, there's your private equity. There's a, the people that are dealing with private equity in Scientology right there. Yeah, exactly. Right? They bowling trophy. They don't, get a, they don't get a 1099 the year, they get a bowling trophy. But, you know, hey, I'll take a bowling trophy if I'm getting, you know, you know, 20% back on my money that's being run through the IAS to you know, some investment vehicle in the Caymans. Let's do it, right? Exactly. So there's a lot of potential there for some shenanigans. And um, and I'm just throwing that out there for, for public interest, to, you know, at large, because I want folks to realize that there's there could be a lot more going on under the hood than even well, we know about. Understand, understand the amount of money that went overseas under in the Hubbard years before Patriot, before any of this stuff even existed. So there are Scientology vehicles in Luxembourg and, and other places that are untouchable because they are incorporated under European law. The IRS has no jurisdiction over them. You know, that money, Scientology can repatriate it through Ireland or through wherever they want, completely legally or illegally, but the money trail is so opaque because it's been so long 
and it's pre the current regulatory environment. And they're not alone. The church side, I mean, there's businesses, the mob, all kinds of people that run in the gray area of money movement that, have, that know this. The feds know this. That's why FACTA came out, the, the Foreign Assets Tax Act in uh, 2018, I think 2010, that said, you know, Americans cannot have numbered bank accounts anywhere in the world. You cannot have an enough, you have to declare all your world above and beyond what used to be the typical IRS thing. Now it's even, you know, high net worth individuals and all this other stuff. It basically pulled the rug out from anybody that was trying to skirt the law on keeping money abroad outside of the purview of the IRS. But even that doesn't apply to a lot of pre-existing money that was, again, incorporated, that was taken abroad and then incorporated under vehicles that are under Europe, that aren't even subject to U.S. jurisdiction. So, you know, there we yeah, are. So until we can figure out ways to actually examine that or investigate that very, very thoroughly, I think we're always going to have a little bit of a black hole there of, <laughs> you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And that's, that's... I mean, Scientology, again, I, I, you know, we, we bang on Scientology, but they're not alone. I mean, this is, hell, I mean, Apple and Google run all their money through Ireland for the same reason. You know, it's just, it's all, it, and this is a difference I want to make clear to people too. There's, a, money laundering is not, can, is not the same as tax avoidance or tax mitigation. Tax mitigation is legal. Tax avoidance is not. Money laundering involves the process of illegal activity. All right. So just because, you know, the Church of Scientology has a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean they're money laundering because that money's come in in the form of donations. It's come in. It's it's got provenance. what's known as provenance. It can be proved where it came from. Now, what they do with it and, you know, to mitigate their tax exposure. Well, they don't really have to much because they're a church. Now, the the, the the profit side, again, off of services or maybe they're. Their international uh, build, you know, the construction side of it, or you know, where there's there's a lot of activity that's not really related to the church. Um, they might there's there's areas that they might be able to play in that gray area with that capital there that might be construed as tax avoidance or money laundering. Who knows? Right. Okay. Well, so, until the IRS and and these regulatory bodies get really serious about this, and I mean, I could just imagine the years. Of scandals that would that would ensue if we wrote laws here in the United States that called for full transparency of church organizations. Well, I would, I would, I would say, I mean, the laws are there. It's the institutional will. I think you know the, the whole ninety three agreement with the church. You no, know, I mean that's an administrative letter to get that thing. But yet, you know, now that the way the IRS has been restructured, we lost that window. Now, it, I guess you know it has to go literally up to the to beyond the commissioner level. Just right. Really from that, Jeff Augustine. No, so, he and I have talked about that, and it yeah, is, and it so, is, it's crazy. Well, there have been, there were structural remedies in place that could have fixed the problem with the church. Right. But it, yeah, they've done their thing. They, they are so good at, at, at safe pointing and or obfuscating official dumb. But here we are, having the same goddamn conversation again and again, right? <laughs> well, only, only in that it's another angle from which to you know, look at how they might be getting away with stuff so that bright people out there who might be eventually listening to this, uh, whose job it is to, you know, figure this stuff out, might figure out ways to to dig in and actually get this stuff, uh, you know, uh, exposed. Because it, it needs to be. Yeah, it does. And But the collective will has to, to be a reappraisal of the First Amendment protections of churches. I, think I agree. 
way beyond Scientology. That's right. I, you know, the founders were very clear in the sense that, um, you know, the separation of church and state was because of the nightmarish institutionalization of religion in Europe. Yep. And you come here and, you know, the evangelical right has co-opted the whole idea of, of what constitutes faith and protection. Uh, you know, what's a mega, what makes a megachurch any different than GM, right? You know, that's money, right? And it has nothing to do with, you know, proselytization if they have to pay tax. You know, so these are the things that, you know, people have to stop, you know, hiding behind is that the idea that there's nothing. <laughs> there's an irony there of, you know, Jesus in the temple with the money launderers, or with the money launderers, with the money lenders, right? Might as well be money launderers. And yet, you know, where's, where's that lesson lost on, you know, these, you know, the these politicians that sit there and say that, well, you know, we, we should have all the money we need to, to, to spread the word. No, you shouldn't. You should be able to spread the word relative to paying your fair share like everybody else does relative to the value you bring to society. But there's right. always need to be a baseline of what that value is. You know, if That's I right. pay an alternative minimum tax every year, why shouldn't the church? Because they are a business at the end of the day. Exactly. And that. And, and that's why I always go back down to this business of well, one, it's a money making scam. But you know, in the in the bigger picture, okay, fine, it's a it's a business, but it's not really business because it's nonprofit. Like, there's all these layers of deception starting like at the core, core, core level. You well, know? and here's the thing: is the non I've been around non I've consulted the nonprofits. Nonprofits make a lot of profit. So <laughs> the thing you have to look at is. What is fair and equitable? And this is this is where the devil in the details is because it's so agenda driven. And this is why this is the elegance of the public benefits test that they have. Again, I go keep going. I live in England for eight years. A lot of stuff they do really well over there when it comes to charity. You know, the idea of of, of what is the public good? What is a charity? What is a nonprofit? You know, understand, yes, we know that you have to have a viable operating budget, you have to have things, and there's okay to pay. But, you know, over here, the head of good of, of Goodwill Industries should not be making, you know, $30 million a year if it's a nonprofit, right? That's, that's absurd. You go into that idea to run the, and, and the argument about, well, we need the best and the brightest. You don't need to pay them $30 million to run a secondhand shop, right? All right. So let's look at this relative to what the net worth of the actual business is, what it's doing, and what it, the chops it takes to run that business, Okay. Nonprofits, charities, all that should be recognized for what they are as a specific segment and regulated, you know, regulated accordingly. As far as I'm concerned, so I, think I, could not, I could not agree more. And I and I think that you know, if you if if we as citizens want to look at well, what can we do, or what should we have our attention on, or what should we be voting for in order to turn this around? It might not be so obvious that taxing churches or uh, demanding more, you know, compliance on on that front. Um, it, it might be the way to fight Scientology, but it actually is. Well, sure. And, I, mean, all these cults. I mean, these groups get away with this. And America is very, you know, somebody asked me weeks ago about how come the cult problem in America is so much bigger than it is in Europe. Are Americans just stupider? And, you know, are they more prone to cults? And, and my answer is, was, of course, no, because there's plenty of cults in Europe, too. But I didn't get into this aspect of it, which is that in America, the laws and the lack of compliance and oversight and all of that 
make it so much easier to form a cult in America than well, it is in other parts of the world. What that, what that plays to is the idea of the individual, the sense of individualism that is at the heart of what it is to be an American. Yep. And, you know, again, having lived abroad, uh, in, in, in Europe for eight years and traveled there, there's a very much a collectivist mindset over there that the individual is not as sacrosanct as they are here. And so all the stuff you just, you know, the, the legal milieu, if you will, around this is all geared at the idea that I have an individual right to worship the way I want, you know, you know freedom, individual, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah, but it also doesn't mean that you can enslave people and feed them rice and beans. I mean, all this other stuff. And see, this is where we lost the plot on separating behavior from belief, which is another mantra of mine that we've lost. All right. We're talking about behavior, not belief. Behavior is a structure around which that we frame people's ability to exercise that belief relatively unfettered. But it, again, it still doesn't mean that, you know, you could be, you know, head of the zombie beavers cult and go out and, you know, beat the shit out of people just because they're zombie beavers, right? I mean, it's nuts. And we just, I just, I cannot see why we just don't get that. It frustrates the hell out. But, you know, me both, man. Public benefits test, all this stuff, it's simple stuff. It is not rocket science, you know? That's right. So, that's right. Exactly. And, uh, and I think we're going to wrap it up at that because there's a whole other tangent I could go down on that. I, I, we're going to leave it at that for now. I, I just want to give you guys out there some food for thought. You know, we, we, we talk about this stuff. We conjecture about certain aspects of it. But at the end of the day, it is a, a greedy, you know, pretty selfish. When we talk about Scientology, when we talk about, you know, the, the shenanigans these guys get up to, you know, it is greed-based, selfish-based nonsense. It's, I call it, it's rapacious capitalism. Yeah, All right. Perfect. You know, this is what, you know, private equity is rapacious capitalism. You know, most people say, well, capitalism itself is rapacious. No, it's not to the extent that if you look at, the, you know, the way, you know, free markets and free minds should work, nah. But when you create vehicles just for the sense of creating wealth out of theoretically nothing, that's rapacious as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of what this is, even though there's product or services involved, you're, you're, you're bundling it in such a way that it, it exponentializes both the profitability and the risk. And why? Outside of just making money, there's no other reason to. So to me, that's rapacious. You know? Fair I'm a, you know, I'm a classic free market, free mind guy, but I mean, there's, at some point you got to pull the plug and say enough because it's making, it's bringing the whole thing down, right? It's, well, that's right. That is, exactly. And that, and that kind of cycle of greed that, that we see perpetuated over and over again is, is, you know, the system, um, sort of creates it, sort of perpetuates it, but, but really it's the thing that's going to destroy the system if we don't, you know, if we're not more careful about this. We, are still, we still have not recovered from 2008. We have still not probably recovered in some instances through the tech bubble in 1999 for crying out loud. Market behavior is is transcendent, you know, and people don't get that. Even a lot of economists miss that, you know, because they're focused on, you know, demand curves and all other stuff, but they're forgetting it's, it's the behavior of people in the marketplace. You know, people get skittish. They have long memories. You know, I look at, you know, part of my mother's trust was wiped out because of 2008. Am I going to sit there and want to go back and look at another wealth management company? Or am I going to want to go back and look at something else? You know, I'm going to sit there and say, well, screw that. I'm going to look at some other more, you know, traditional investment. Meanwhile, there might be something out there, but because of some idiot that is, you know, decided that he was uh, going to screw somebody in Salinas or the Central Valley on a bad real estate deal, all of us pay for it. You know, this is exactly. the thing. Not exactly. just, you know, this is where you know, it's a mistake that people think that Wall Street operates in a vacuum. So anyway. All right, fair enough. 
All right, Jeff. Well, again, thank you very much for taking the time to contribute to this and and, and be part of this conversation. Now, you did a lot of work on this. You spent hours researching it, and I really appreciate it. And uh, and your educated view on this stuff is is valuable, and I hope uh, I hope everybody got something out of this. Thank you. And again, I would tell go out to to Jeff Augustine's Money Project too if you want some other context on this. There's some really good stuff out there. And there's a surprising amount of press releases that have been put out by the legal folks that are suing GPB that are very uh, eye-opening. And it's, I'm surprised at the amount of public information around this thing. Usually these things are kind of a dirty secret kept under the hood, but there you are. Okay, man. All right, right, guys. Any uh, questions, comments, feedback, leave it in the comment section here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. I am always interested in your feedback on this stuff um, and where we're going and what else you might also like to see or hear here on this podcast. So thanks for coming around and I'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye.